feeding the 5,000 today? Is that a favorite? It's such a significant miracle. It, it, it's the only miracle of Jesus's that's recorded in all four gospels. That is the only miracle of Jesus in all four gospels save the most ultimate miracle, which is the resurrection of Jesus from among the dead. So the feeding of the 5,000 was uniquely important to the disciples. Again, they all include it, they all describe it in rich detail, and they describe it uniquely with their own particular emphases and color and touch to do with it, what really impacted them from it. So John records you know, very few miracles in his gospel. That's a, an interesting thing about his gospel. He has long discourses, fewer miracles, but, but he makes a whole lot of this one, if you recall in John 6. And it became very precious in the early church. It even quickly supplied material for the ma- a major theme in their Christian art, the loaves and the fish. And so we ask ourselves the question, why did it impact them so deeply? And the timing of this miracle is so pivotal. So Jesus decides to perform this miracle at a, at a critical juncture in his ministry. He's concluding his wider Galilean ministry where he's been ministering to so many crowds and so many people. I mean, case in point, this one. He is concluding that public Galilean ministry and from this point on, well next week we'll have the confession of Peter, kind of around that point on, he does engage the crowds but his focus is on these 12 men that he has to disciple and train and get them ready and particularly in view of him instructing them that I'm gonna suffer and die. So this is incredibly important. On on just a superficial way. Luke 7, 34 says, the son of man came eating and drinking because it's in eating and drinking that he was showing the beauty of the communion and the abundance of grace in the gospel and now he's saying, well, my time focusing on the crowds is coming to an end. Let's have a banquet because I've come eating and drinking to extend communion and table fellowship from the Father with you. And so let's read it. Luke chapter nine, verse 10. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. And he took them and drew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away and the 12 came and said to him, send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. They said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. 
And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so and had them all sit down, taking the five loaves and the two fish. He looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to his disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces, and the grass withers, flowers fade, and this good word endures forever, and endures forever for you. So four points, Jesus takes his disciples on a retreat. And so Luke now calls them apostles here. Last time he called them apostles, the first time was in Luke 6 when he calls them. He calls them to be apostles, but he hasn't referred to them in that way until here. The reason he calls them apostles here is he just got through sending them out on a mission trip. So apostle, you remember, comes from the Greek word apostello, meaning send, with a commission to represent the sender. Where the sendee is, there also is the sender, with his authority and his provision. And so he calls them apostles again. They've just gone out two by two, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, casting out demons and curing diseases in all the villages in Galilee. And it's been an incredible experience. The success of the mission is proved by so many people rushing around the lake to find Jesus and his disciples. It's made an incredible stir in that area of Galilee. And it's also been uh, just a very busy, constant, exhausting time for the disciples. And they are worn out. They have been spending and spending And so they come back telling Jesus all they had done and the verb they use in reporting what they'd done is a very, it's related to the word used in Luke 1.1 when Luke says, as he starts his gospel, many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. They're going play by play like Luke even is writing his gospel. They have a lot to say. They've experienced Jesus' power in their mission effort in an abundant way. So Jesus knows his apostles are depleted. They're on empty. They need rest. They need a retreat. They need a time to relax and get recharged. They need a time to reflect and talk things out and work things through with him, alone with him. And that right there encourages me a ton. It's like this pressure relief valve that's just open. I get this deep sigh that Jesus knows that. And and Jesus takes the initiative to lead his disciples off by themselves to get refreshed. It's Jesus's idea. He's aware they need it and he takes the initiative to give it for them. I mean, he wants that. He cares for them in that way. He doesn't demand this nonstop, frenetic, breakneck pace, always pushing, always driving. He doesn't demand that. He, he doesn't demand of us what our idols demand of us. He gives us rest. He leads us in a time of rest. Remember, he is the one who said, come to me, all ye who are weary, and heavy laden, 
and I will give you rest in the deepest sense. So one of the men's groups is studying a book we worked through in several men's groups five or six years ago. Uh, It's called Reset, Living a Grace-Paced Life in a Burnout Culture. Don't you like that title? It's just a great title. Uh, It's recognizing that he's God and we're not, that we can have healthy rhythms in our life, that we need more than entertainment, we need rest. We need patient, unhurried time apart with Jesus, time to relax and talk things out with Jesus and his people. We need to be mindful of what John the Baptist said when he was asked about who he was and he responded, I'm not the Christ. Like, you're not Christ. You have the amazing privilege of being able to be used by Christ, but you're not Christ. So Matthew and Mark add, uh, Jesus gets his disciples in a boat. That's their detail. They get in a boat. They go over to a solitary region near the town of Bethsaida. It's not too far from Capernaum. It's on the northeast shore of the Sea of Galilee. And it's this region near that town, but it's a deserted, uninhabited, solitary, pastoral, don't you just love it, place for them to have a retreat. All right, Jesus takes them on a treat. Second, Jesus shows compassion to the burdened crowd. So now the only problem is that Jesus' plan is, um, the only problem with Jesus' plan is that the crowds, the crowds have seen them get into the boat. And these are crowds that have been stirred and helped by Jesus' and his disciples' ministry. They catch wind of what's going on. They may see him off in the lake And so they rush along the shoreline to find them. And we know something about this crowd. I mean, they're far from perfect and they're confused. They're confused about who Jesus is and what his mission really is about. They've benefited from it a ton, but they're not actually sure who Jesus is. And that's why in verses eight and nine, they're saying things, is he Elijah? Is he John the Baptist? Is he a prophet? And Following this account, we're gonna see they keep asking the same questions. Is he Elijah? Is he a prophet? Who is he? So there's a lot of questions. John even says in his account that after Jesus feeds them, they wanna take him by force and make him king. So they're mixed up in their thinking. They don't have it clear. The disciples too are still a bit mixed up. But it's so inspiring and endearing that they so want to be with Jesus, they so fear Jesus leaving them that they stop everything and run after him. And I think that's a beautiful picture of faith. At this earnest desire to be with Jesus. They run around the lake to go be with him. So I don't know about you, but when I really want to rest, and even more when I think I deserve to rest, and I get interrupted by those who think I need to work more, that I sometimes don't respond very well. But we get this beautiful picture into Jesus's heart here. It seems they may get a little rest, John indicates, but it's cut way too short. And so very soon this huge crowd appears in this solitary region, whereas just moments earlier, 
It was grass and trees and fields. All of a sudden, it's 5,000 men, not counting women and children. That might ramp it up to 10,000, 15,000. All of a sudden, a solitary region is overflowing with people. They're, they're filling up the countryside. They hoped they were gonna refresh themselves, but now these people are bringing in their needs and their burdens and their anxieties and their sins and they're sick. Everything has changed. There was no one and now there's everyone. There was them refreshing themselves. Now there's a, a sea of people clamoring for their attention. And we wonder how's Jesus gonna respond to this? And it's a beautiful Lucan feature. He's the one who says that Jesus just looks at that crowd as they're gathering, gathering momentum, filling up that solitary place, and he welcomes them. He doesn't turn them away. Their needs mean more to him than his convenience. He welcomes them like a gracious head of household would welcome someone into his home, into his table to be guests of honor. Because he's come eating and drinking. He likes company. He gives them a warm-hearted reception even when they interrupt his plans and disturb his rest. It's this faint picture of the way Jesus welcomes us when we rush to him in our distress and desperation. He's our advocate, our intercessor, our high priest. Hebrews 4 says he sympathizes with us in our weakness because he's tempted like we are he calls us to come to his throne of grace to find timely help in time of need. It's, it's a picture of Jesus in heaven. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. The way he welcomes the crowd here is the way he welcomes you and me in glory. And so he gives them what they need. He preaches the gospel to them, the forgiveness of sins, their root need. He cures their diseases and they're disabled. He cares for them body and soul. And what he did through the disciples, he now does personally. He does it. Because it was always him doing it anyway. Well, Jesus puts his disciples to the test. Third point. It gets late. It gets late in the day. The day wears on. I like that description. And it says, really, again, a whole lot about the crowd that their eagerness for being in Jesus' presence is that they stay with him, they stick with him through the day in this desolate, uninhabited area, even as sunset approaches. I mean, they're captivated by him. Well, the disciples start getting nervous, and they look out at this sea of people, so many, men, women, children, five, 10, 15,000 people in this uninhabited area, and they get concerned. And so they asked Jesus to send them away so they can go into the villages and find food and lodging. I mean, it shows the apostles are sensitive to the needs of the crowd. There's, there's something of concern for them. However, we also find in the other accounts that they also just want to cut them loose. They're ready to get back to their retreat. And we see a difference in their heart and Jesus' heart in that Jesus never trying to cut us loose in our needs. 
He's never trying to offload us to someone else. He owns us with all of our needs, our sin, he owns us. And so they asked Jesus to send them away to find food and lodging, but Jesus turns to them and utterly surprises them, catches them cold. He looks at them at that request and he says, you give them something to eat. And the you is emphatic. You do it. You do it. So we stand back, we say, how on earth could Jesus do this? How could Jesus ask this of them? How could the disciples do it? 12 men, without any supplies. How on earth do they provide for so many people? He asked them to do something they can't do. They don't have it in them to do it. They don't have the wherewithal to feed so many people. He asks them to do something they can't do. And so, why would Jesus do that? And so, maybe Jesus is poignantly, graphically teaching them a lesson. Later in Luke, he's going to say, look, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find knock and the door will be opened to you. For he who asks, receives. He who seeks, finds. He who knocks, the door will be opened. Maybe he's wanting them to fill in what that asking looks like by this event saying, you wanna know what I mean by that? I'm not just saying the things you think I can do. I'm saying, ask me for big stuff. If you wanna know what I mean, it's, it's things like this. When I asked you to feed a multitude for me, something you couldn't possibly do on your own, I'm inviting you to ask and ask big. And we struggle with that. And maybe we're a bit jaded. We've asked things and we haven't seen God come through in the way we had hoped but he's looking at them, he's put them in this situation. He says, ask. Later he's gonna talk more about persistently ask. And so John six helps us out and it says what's implicit here. It says that Jesus asks his disciples to feed the crowd because he's testing their faith. So will you ask me for the resources to do what I've commanded you to do? And this doesn't drop out of the air. They've had to ask him to do a lot of stuff over the last couple of weeks. He's just building on that. Would you keep that up? Ask me for what you don't have. You see, Jesus could have dismissed the crowd an hour earlier. He could have done it. He put his disciples into this situation that was bigger than they were. That was too much for them. He's in control of this. He's put them there and asked them to do something they couldn't do. And so Dr. Douglas Kelly, who we've had preach here before, he says something like this, Jesus wants to convince them and convince us that your limitations and your smallness, those are not the main questions. I mean, you consider it, of course, we assess the situation, but 
the one who called you to do something, he is the question, he's the question, that he really will supply your needs, and that's one of the most valuable lessons we'll ever learn as long as we live. Philippians 4.19, but my God shall supply all your need according to his glorious riches in Christ. Well, what did we read earlier? And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that you will have all sufficiency all times in every way to do what he's called you to do. He's teaching them that lesson and he does that with us. He leads us into things that we just don't have the resources for. And some of us have felt that very acutely of late, but you all have dealt with that. I mean, being in a marriage, you do not have the resources for it. It's too much. A marriage like scripture describes a marriage, it's too much. He's put you there and he said, ask me. To be a father and a mother, you're in over your head. We do the best we can, but God's put us in a place where we have to have him. A friendship even, to be a good friend, like we're out of our depth. How are sinners friends? We have to have him. Ask, your, your jobs, your, your health, your aging, your finances, like grief, difficulties. He, he, he leads us into the storms of life. He leads us into concern over loved ones and their salvation. He leads us into, he tells us, look, you don't have what, you, you don't have in you to do what you need to do and yet I've put you here. You don't have what it, the wherewithal to be who you need to be in these relationships, but I've put you here. You're not enough, but I've led you here in order that you ain't seek resources in me. And you see, Luke really streamlines his account more than the others do. He leaves out some things because he's wanting to make a very clear point to us. He enhances the central point of that question, who is Jesus? And so, right sandwiched between the two accounts, we have, is he John the Baptist? Is he Elijah? Is he a prophet? Then right after we have, is he Elijah? Is he a prophet? Is he John the Baptist? The point is, like, who is he? Like, is he enough in this situation? It's the question of questions, really. It's the question we always want to have at a worship service. Like, who is Jesus right here? Well, the fourth final point is Jesus provides food for all the people. So Jesus tells the disciples to feed this vast throng of people and all they have to offer is, is five loaves and two fish. Mark tells us that Jesus had asked them to go look for what resources they had and John tells us that Andrew finds a young boy whose mother packed him a nice little lunch. And so the disciples say to Jesus, we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we were to go out and buy all this food for these people. And the sense of all of that is, we don't have the money to buy all that food. We couldn't find that much food even if we had that money. So here we've looked around for resources to feed all these people and this is all we got, five loaves and two fish. It's it, it's all the resources that are to be found 
in this reconnaissance that we've done. That's all we've got. And they're totally inadequate for what Jesus has called them to do. And yet Jesus takes those inadequate resources. He didn't have to, but he does. He takes them. He didn't laugh at them. He receives them. They're offered to him and he receives them. He takes the five loaves and two fish and he gets his disciples to arrange the crowd in groups of 50 and have them sit down and he takes the five loaves, the two fish, he looks up to heaven, he says a blessing over them, he breaks the loaves and the fish, he gives them to his disciples to set before the crowd and at some point in here, this incredible miracle of creation takes place. He multiplies it all to the degree that as they pass it out, the crowds eat and are satisfied to such an extent that it overflows. Grace upon grace, they have 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of fish and bread left over as each disciple went around being a good steward and gathering up what was not eaten. The psalmist in Psalm 78 reports that in the wilderness of the Exodus, the crowds looked at Moses and they scoffed, can God spread a table in the wilderness? He can't do that. And yet God did it with the manna in Exodus 16. He did it with the quail. And God, through Christ, has done that here. What does that mean about Jesus? Who is he? Who is he? I mean, he's I am that I am in the flesh. That's who he is, staggering. The one that appeared in the bush, in the column of fire. He's there, robed in flesh, in our midst, spreading a table in the wilderness. And he chooses to perform this miracle of creation with the meager resources the apostles offer to him. And it's just amazing, something so inadequate, something so minuscule, Yet he chooses to use it. He uses what they've got, however small. Jesus is the God of multiplying grace. He loves taking our fumbling little efforts. He does beyond what we could ask or imagine with what we offer. He increases their measly, pitiful offering so that it feeds a multitude. And so Dr. Kelly has these statements again. I think many people fail to get far with the Lord because they don't feel like they have very much. And we compare ourselves with others and say, I don't have those kind of resources and gifts. How could you use me? And he says, all you need is what little you've got. The issue is we give it to God when he asks for it. We must never let our smallness hold us back from offering what little we've been given by the Lord. What we say is, Lord, I'm available, therefore what I have is available to you. That's some of the most important words you'll ever say if you want to live a life that's truly Christian, that counts. Lord, I'm available to you, and therefore what I have is available to you. Where you've placed me, and sometimes you place me in places that it's very, very obvious that I don't have what it takes. And don't you see why the disciples would have loved this account? Because after Jesus resurrects from the dead, he's accomplished the work, he gathers them at a mountain, and he sends them on the great commission to feed the world with the bread of life. And they're looking and going, who are we 
to do that. This is a sea of people like no other sea of people. How are we going to feed and satisfy a world with the bread of life? And Jesus has given them already the feeding of the 5,000 to say, look, just do what you can with what I've given you. I'm the God of multiplying grace. Salvation is of the Lord. I'm gonna use it. And he does the same for us. He puts us in situations that are beyond our ability. He wants us to see that our Redeemer will increase and multiply our grace. He will use our attention we give. We'll use our time, use our money. He uses our words, uses our deeds, uses our prayers. Far beyond we think they would have any efficacy. And it just reminds me of that wonderful poem of Annie Johnson Flint. You probably know when God placed her in such difficult situation with her health. And she writes this poem that says this, he giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. He giveth more strength when the labors increase. To added affliction he addeth is mercy to multiplied trials, he multiplies peace. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed ere the day is half done, when we've reached the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving has only begun. Fear not that thy need shall exceed his provision. Our God ever yearns his resources to share. Lean hard on the arm everlasting availing. Our Father, both thee and thy load will upbear. His love has no limit, his grace has no measure, his power no boundary known unto men, for out of his infinite riches in Jesus he giveth and giveth and giveth again. And he does, and you know that. And he gives us this incredible miracle to convince you of it where he's placed you in those spaces where you don't have enough. And he said, give me what you got. Give me that cup of cold water and that kind word and that little prayer and that one talent and that widow's might. And I'm the God of multiplying grace and I will increase it for your good and my glory. And we know this better than the disciples at this point because see, John tells us this is Passover. A year from now, Jesus is gonna gather his disciples in an upper room and he's gonna take bread and he's gonna offer a blessing over it and he's gonna break it and he's gonna give it to them and he's gonna say, this is my body given for you. And if he has taken care of our greatest need far above and beyond our ability to ever do so, if he has offered himself as our substitute below the wrath of God to take it from us, that we might be forgiven by faith alone in Christ alone. If he's done the greatest thing, won't he therefore multiply and increase grace to you in those smaller needs you have, in those moments when you don't think you have resources, that he might gain the glory, you might grow in grace, and you might work for the eternal saving good of those God's entrusted to you. Won't he do it? Won't he do it? May God's people say, amen. Let's stand.